91.3 FM Serio. My radio station, your radio station, our radio station, the voice of the Cape. Good evening, Khuyanand Moweni, and a healthy welcome to the Shahida Kali show. Let me tell you what my program is going to be about uh, tonight. So, we will speak with Kath Day, who is the director of Rape Crisis, and we will be looking at a two part series in which we will focus on men against abuse and violence. So, this will be a two part series. After Ramadan, we'll pick up our conversations with rape crisis again because I'd like for us to explore when people are experiencing sexual harassment and abuse, etc., that, you know, they know what the process should be for them to follow and and also to discuss aspects of the trauma and what would be helpful. Good evening, Kath, and welcome to the program. Yes, hi, Shahida. Thanks so much for inviting me to this interesting conversation well you're welcome but we and and we appreciate very much that you are made yourself available for us to have this conversation with you i think before we start off the conversation which would uh, and and we would like to focus on men against abuse and violence i'd like perhaps for you to just give us a little bit of background in um in regard to information about rape crisis what does rape crisis do and you know the types of people who will be accessing help from rape crisis please certainly thanks thanks for the opportunity to share that um so rape crisis obviously is an organization set up to deal with the very very high rates of rape that we have in south africa and in the western cape specifically because that's where we are based but Um, The three areas where we offer services and where we do our work is firstly, we have a 24-hour helpline for anybody who wants to ask any question or share any problem that they have about rape, Mm -hmm. whether they are a rape survivor or they know somebody who is or they want to report to the police and they're not sure how to go about it. Yes. And then often people use that helpline as an entry point to our face-to-face counselling service, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a a confidential service, um, one-on-one counselling at one of our three offices, either in observatory in Atlan or in Kailicha. Mm-hmm. And then um, we also offer services based at points within the criminal justice system where people come to report rape. So 
The first of these is the Tutuzela Care Center, which is a, a medical unit, a forensic unit. Yeah. Um, and we have counselors on duty at three main hospitals in Cape Town mm-hmm. uh, on a 24-hour basis to just walk people through that obviously very, very traumatic process. Yeah. And then at five of our courts, we have court supporters on duty every uh, working day of the court to talk people through the process of testifying in a rape case, whether they are there as a rape survivor or as a witness to a rape. Okay. So those are direct services. But what we're interested in, I think, and why this conversation you've invited us to is so important is our Making Change program. Because that's the program where we go into schools and where we run workshops with community members, where we engage in discussions about what are the drivers of rape, what makes rape high, Mm-hmm. in our country or in a particular community what can we do to address that yeah and then lastly but most importantly our advocacy campaign which is to draw government's attention to um, flaws in the legislation mm-hmm. and what we're focusing on at the moment is the rollout of specialized sexual offenses courts where the government actually makes sure that the rape survivor gets all the care and proper facilities um, that she needs and that there are specialized personnel, so prosecutors and magistrates who, who manage those, uh, those, those matters in court. Yeah. Um, because that is what we believe will bring about the highest possible conviction rate and that's obviously an extremely important part of any country's response to a crime like this. Yes. So I just want to ask, you know, whilst you were um, just describing of the the help and the services that rape crisis give to people, just want to touch on the sexual offences courts. Are there such courts in the Western Cape, for example, yes, that are existing? Yes, courts, um, but not enough. So they're very unevenly distributed, mainly in the urban areas. So. Um, there are not as many courts across the country as there should be, and there are not yeah. as many courts in the in the Western Cape as there should be. Mm-hmm. And what sometimes happens is that although some of the services or some of the infrastructure is in place for a sexual offences court, yes. it doesn't quite meet all of the criteria. Okay, which so, is? Well, the criteria are, first of all, the specialised personnel that I mentioned before, magistrates, yes. prosecutors, and so on. So yeah. the staff that run that court are specialised in sexual offences law. Yes. And also that there is an NGO uh, running a psychosocial service for rape survivors. So mm-hmm. all of that emotional support that they need and all of the practical information that they need to walk them through that process. I mean, many people arrive at the court not knowing at all what's of required course. of them. Of course. So somebody to brief them and just explain and, and metaphorically hold their hand through yes. that process just by being supportive and by yeah. being there. Yeah, and then the infrastructure is very important to Heather. You know, um, especially when children testify, mm-hmm. they don't sit in the courtroom in the presence of the accused. Yeah, they are in a separate room, connected to the court via closed circuit television, yeah. with a social worker sharing the questions that come from the court with the child, and certain other vulnerable witnesses, so mentally handicapped witnesses, witnesses that have been very, very severely traumatized. So the yes. prosecutor might have to motivate for a particularly vulnerable witness to use that facility yeah but also more obviously a separate waiting room you cannot be sitting in the same waiting room as the person that you have accused of raping you yeah and expect to go into court with any degree of calm (laughs) so 
that's a very, very important service. Um, I mean, uh, part of the court <coughs> infrastructure. Yeah. So those and are the sorts of things that need to be in place for a court to be called a sexual offences court. That's really great that you're working on it. And particularly, I mean, I've de- dealt with so many people who have been raped. And, and like you said, the absolute fear of seeing the perpetrator and being in close proximity of the perpetrator very, very often will discourage the person to go to court. Absolutely. Yeah, they can't bear to see the person. No. And sometimes you have a person who would have raped someone and they are so arrogant and so on. And that, and that in itself, you know, makes it extremely difficult to keep the person calm that they can really testify to the best of their ability. Yes, they can be very intimidating. Yeah. And even people who don't intend to be intimidating, like the magistrate or the prosecutor, can end up being intimidating because the person is so unsure of their role and, you know, what's actually supposed to be happening and what's required of them. Yeah. So, you know, there are so many ways to be intimidated within the criminal justice system and it's a very, very difficult challenge to face if you are experiencing the trauma of having been raped. Yeah, and I think very, very often people feel and experience it as secondary trauma. Yeah. Um, you know, or they're made to feel as, or they get, come away from it feeling as if they were actually the guilty party. Yeah. It's really, really not easy. I'd like to go back to, and, and I'd really like to have the opportunity to almost speak about all the different services that you're offering but I'd like us to speak about because our focus is men against abuse and violence yes. just to speak about your making change program whether any of such angles or aspects are worked into your presentations yes absolutely um, and it's a very exciting area of work for us because um, we don't have all the answers and there are very exciting questions to be asked and very interesting discussions to be held. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the most exciting space for that is with the adolescents. So school learners um, between the ages of 16, uh, 15 and 17, mm-hmm. so grade 9, 10 and 11, yes. uh, we train these learners to understand all the dynamics of rape and all the, the, you know, the medical facts, the legal facts, the pathway through the criminal justice system. Um, everything that they need to know in order to be a resource to their peers. Yeah. So should there be somebody who's been a victim, in uh, school they know that they can approach a peer um, yeah. at the school and get advice and referral. Okay. But these peers also, um, these learners also put on plays and do workshops in life orientation classes for their fellow learners yeah. to help um, to challenge the myths and stereotypes that exist. So okay. these might be stereotypes about women or yes. about men or about gender. Yeah. They might be stereotypes about sick. They might be stereotypes about rape. Mm-hmm. And um, we try to debunk these myths by getting the uh, these teenagers to actually just have a conversation. Okay. And the more open uh, the conversation, the better. So we try to create an environment that feels safe, where everybody feels confident that they can say what they think and feel and they will be listened to. There's no question that's too silly. There's, uh, you, you can defend yourself. There's nothing that's, um, that's not allowed in that conversation other than disrespect of other people. So the, the kids get really, really into it. They mm-hmm. absolutely love it. So, yeah. for example, 
you will put a, a statement on the table that's quite challenging. Like mm-hmm. you'll say, women that wear short skirts are asking to be raped. Yeah. And then you will see how the boys approach that and you will see how the girls approach that. Yeah. And they will debate it out amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. And we don't prescribe. We don't say you have to believe this and you mustn't believe the other. Yeah. Yeah. But we just give the freedom for them to form their own impression and their own understanding. And it's amazing how kids that age are so true to themselves. They, mm-hmm. They're still fresh in the world of opinions and yeah. very eager to form their own opinions. Yeah. And so they, they thoroughly enjoy those sessions and they really pull all the arguments to pieces. I'm sure. And then they put that together for, the, for their schoolmates, like in the form of a play or in the form of a debate or a workshop. Anything to, to get the, the attention grabbed and the thinking caps on. That's really, really wonderful. I think when one affords young people these types of opportunities, it's when they really make it their own. Yes. I'd like to go back to, um, you know, when you are having these conversations. And, I mean, I'd like us to just allude to some of the conversations that could be had so that if there are listeners who are listening and um, there are myths and stereotypes that need to be debunked, I'd like for us to speak a little bit about those myths. And also, if you had put on a statement of women wearing miniskirts are asking to be raped, I'd like to get a sense of, you know, where men would be in regard to such a statement or young boys and where the young girls would be. It would be very interesting for me to get a sense of that. We're particularly speaking about their making change program so kath i just before the break i asked you perhaps we should speak you know a little bit um, about the myths and the stereotypes that you know in your experience with your work um, still could be existing in society now we we refer to one of those which is girls with mini skirts ask to be raped what was the response or what generally speaking would be the response that you that you are experiencing to this type of myth or stereotype so um a a myth is a notion that might have a grain of truth very deep in the heart of it Mm -hmm. right but what happened is that it's become uh, made into a kind of an artificial belief mm-hmm. where the, the the stereotype has overtaken the reality. And when I say the reality, this is what I mean. If you had to go to a forensic laboratory or a forensic unit and you had to read all of the reports on the clothing worn by the rape survivors, examined by the forensic examiners, you would, not, you would find every single type of clothing you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. So... The kind of clothes that a person wears is not a determinant of their being raped. They will get raped no matter what kind of clothing they are wearing. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yes. So that immediately tells you that the notion is false, and yet people cling to that belief. Why do they do that? Mm-hmm. And so you'll get the girls in the classroom situation say, look, look how short my skirt is. This yeah. is my school uniform I'm wearing. Yeah. And I'm wearing my um, bigger sister's hand-me-down school uniform and I'm already growing out of it too quickly. That's why it's short. Yeah. It's not an invitation. Mm-hmm. And they have a fantastic slogan that they use. They say, it's a dress, not a yes. 
Okay. Now, let's say that same girl was going out on a Friday evening and mm-hmm. she was wearing reveal and clothing yeah. deliberately as yeah. a signal. She was sending out a signal through the way that she was dressing to potential sexual partners. What mm-hmm. is she actually saying in that signal? She is inviting something that she is going to enjoy. Mm-hmm. She is inviting consensual sex with a partner that she will choose. Mm-hmm. That is not rape. Mm-hmm. That is the complete opposite of rape. So she might be wearing those clothes because it's fashionable and she's completely unconscious of the fact that it's um, sending out that kind of a signal. Mm-hmm. Each woman is different. She wears what she wears for whatever reason it is. Mm-hmm. So when we take the attention away from the women and on to the men, we ask a very different question. You know, why would you not feel protective of any woman under any situation why would you not respect her consent so why would you take a dress as a yes rather than engaging in a conversation with the person inside the dress Mm -hmm. so those are the kinds of conversations that they have in the classroom and you can imagine they get very excitable there's a lot of argument that goes on which is all um it's fuel to help people think and to develop their own opinions we're not going to say to them this is right and this is wrong mm-hmm. we're just going to offer challenges to the stereotyped way of thinking okay so perhaps you know we there is also the whole um understanding that rape is about power and it's about um violence and control yes. do you focus on any of such matters or aspects yes. no absolutely because there's also there's so many different stereotypes, so, and some of those myths come about because of outdated ideas. Mm-hmm. So it may have been true many years ago when women were not able to go out and earn their own incomes, for example, yeah. where women were very subordinate to men, where they, it was very difficult for them to live independently because they weren't able to get access to um, their own independent incomes. Mm-hmm. And therefore they had to ask men for permission. They had to ask men for money to be able to do things. And so that whole dynamic in a relationship where the man held a certain kind of economic power and the women didn't have that mm-hmm. led to an understanding that that's the way it will always be. But times have changed. Mm-hmm. And now you women don't have to ask uh, necessarily for for that they can go out and and be a professional they can go and study they can get very good jobs they can earn more than their husbands yeah uh, the role can even be reversed mm-hmm. so things have changed and the the ideas haven't necessarily caught up with those kinds of ideas so that's yeah. also something that we stir into that mixture with the kids and not just um school children but also in communities uh, where adults come together to have workshops with our organization. So, you know, older people sometimes cling very, very strongly to ideas that were true 50, 60 years ago yeah. and haven't caught up with the way things might have changed and mm-hmm. therefore it's very difficult for them to change their thinking. Yeah. So a workshop is a lovely space where you get all kinds of different ideas and people will challenge what you say yeah. um, and force you to... To, to reposition your thinking a little bit, you know, where those things are concerned. Yeah. Do you 
find, you know, in your workshops and so that people would separate power and control from violence, that they don't, that they wouldn't see this as necessarily a different type of violence, like um, emotional and psychological violence? Do you think there is, you know, some clarity around it? What do you find in our communities? Well, you know, some women are just so brave. It's absolutely incredible. But they will share their own experiences in a workshop. They will tell their own story mm-hmm. to give evidence to to the opinion that they're trying to express. So they will say, my husband never laid a finger on me. Yes. He never, ever, ever let me go out by myself, yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. You know, so and he was very, very jealous and very, very possessive. And how she experienced that as a form of violence because of the way that it made her feel. Yeah. And so it's fantastic in a workshop when you do get people who, who find the courage or the confidence to to share their own experiences and to use that to illustrate a point that's being made in the workshop because then people can see that raw emotion on her face and they cannot but believe what she's telling them and it's a, it's a living example yeah. of what somebody's experiencing. Yeah. And I'd like us to speak about the aspects of saying no and how no can be perceived differently by different people. Then I've had an SMS that had come through. So the person is saying, I feel what's also important is to also focus on the subtleties and difficulties of this topic in order to pinpoint and identity. That's the part that I'm not so sure of what is being meant the person goes on to say not quite sure if i'm making sense i do feel it's important to apply to both males and females so i'm really really not sure what the person's asking so i'd like to invite the person to send us another whatsapp message in which they perhaps just explain themselves a little bit more so that we can speak about the aspects that they would like us to speak about our focus is men against abuse and violence it's a two-part series but we kind of you know moving a little bit around that and what we're speaking about is the making change program of rape crisis and we're talking about the different um, things that are and aspects that are explored in terms of you know the the prevalence of rape and different aspects thereof so my question before the break has been um, what and what is the conversation around saying no the person saying no how they feel about it and also how um, people experience being said and being refused and getting the the answer of no, please. So I think it goes back again to the idea of, of how we're socialized differently as men and women. And I'm making that very um, clear distinction, although obviously there are people who identify outside of that masculine-feminine binary. But just for the sake of our argument that we're having now in our discussion, mm-hmm. to say that women are socialized to be submissive, to be compliant, to be kind, to, to offer to help, to um, not engage in conflict, to, to not be, particularly not to be aggressive. Yeah. Now, these are all things that kind of can go all the way down to physically and not being the strongest sex. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that's a, a stereotyped way of thinking about women. 
and the equivalent stereotype is that men are the opposite, that they are, are socialized to go out and get the things that they feel they deserve and want. They're encouraged to be assertive. Um, being aggressive is not regarded as a bad thing. It's often encouraged. They are encouraged to be physically strong and um, to fight for what they want. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you partner somebody who is socialized to be submissive with somebody who is socialized to be dominant yes. or comes from that group and the person who is submissive says no, it goes against the grain. It goes against what the aggressive person wants to hear. Mm-hmm. And what is the aggressive person socialized to do? They socialize to ignore that no. So mm-hmm. what do we do with women? Do we socialize them to continue along that spectrum or do we socialize them to become more assertive? Yeah. To realize that they are allowed to say no, that in fact it serves them very often to say no. Yes. And then you just think of the stereotype of the overworked woman who just says yes and yes and yes, becomes terribly overcommitted and can't actually do everything that she's promised to do and, you know, stresses herself into illness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the same time, socializing men to respect a no, um, because in the end, actually, that is what serves them better. You want a willing partner, a sexual partner who is enthusiastic. That is what you want. You don't actually want somebody who says yes, when in fact, they mean no. Yeah. And quite often, um, a person can be intimidated. We were speaking earlier about intimidation can be intimidating to, into saying yes and then you know. And so, you know, consent is an incredibly central issue yeah. uh, in rape. And there are so many both subtle and overt power plays that can happen. And I think your, your, your second question that you mentioned before the break about identity, yes. um, I think that I, I had a, a few thoughts about that. I don't know if the person... Um, gave you more information the person has actually sent through another message and i think it's actually good i'm going to read it kath it Mm -hmm. says sorry i meant identify the subtleties around grooming and uncomfortable feeling which makes it difficult to pinpoint but makes you feel uncomfortable i think it is a critically important point in terms of grooming in order to rape or grooming as a part of sexual harassment and abuse um, and and in terms of saying no and all of those things that you described um, you know the feeling of I'm supposed to be kind I'm supposed to be nice um, it's not becoming um, of me to have to perhaps sound aggressive if I say a really clear no um, and though and, and that's of the subtleties that this person is really speaking about so let's speak a little bit about that Yes, I mean, I think sexual harassment at school, in the workplace, um, you know, those kind of environments where you are constrained by the formality of certain relationships, you can be very, very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So somebody who's your boss, or even a colleague, a peer, can come and stand close to you and look over your shoulder at your computer screen and get away with it. Yeah, But you're feeling uncomfortable and there's nothing you can say because this person has a right to be showing you how to change your Excel spreadsheet or whatever it is they're showing you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't like the way their arm is pressing against your shoulder. Mm-hmm. What can you do? What can you say? You can sort of shift away, but 
you know, you're constrained by the power play and that can be incredibly subtle. You can be the only person who's actually aware of it besides the person who's doing it to you. Yes. So when you complain, there will be no witnesses. Nobody yeah. will be able to back up your story because they didn't experience it in the way that you did. And even something, so, so controlling the space around a person is a subtle form of harassment that's mm-hmm. very commonly used. Yeah. The other one is unwanted romantic attention. Mm-hmm. So a person can couch their sexual advances on um, a woman as being motivated by love yeah. and uh, use that as an excuse to yes. cross too many boundaries and to behave in a way that's an inappropriate yeah. because of course I'm crazy in love, I don't even know what I'm doing. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, the person on the receiving end of that unwanted attention doesn't want the attention, never yeah. mind the motivation for it. They, just, yeah. they don't want it and that no also has to be respected. Yeah. And, and you know, the person has just sent another message um, through that says, and I think what makes it so much more difficult is that most of the time it's people known to you. We know that, and I've written down a list of, if we're looking at sexual harassment, then we're looking at the scenario at in the workplace. We're looking at when a person is really in a vulnerable space and someone takes advantage of that. And even in a friendship, you know, you, you refer to when someone is um, you know giving some another person unwanted romantic attention within the realms of um, I love you and therefore it's okay for me to do this the space control also persons who are in uh, positions of power I'd also you know and I think I'd like us to speak about family and you know this person is saying very often you will find sexual harassment coming from um, family and even long-standing friends like you'd have you know how I think there are thousands and thousands of women um, in previous years when it was not all that open as it is today that people will speak up about it yes. where, where women would have been sexually harassed by uncles and friends of fathers and neighbors and so on I, th- I just think there are thousands of women and they just never spoke about it they yes. just survived it and tried to protect themselves and never said a word yes. and very often when for example sisters get together they start speaking about it years and years later the one says to the other oh my word he tried the same thing with me yes. and it is just so horrible what I really also w- would like us to speak about and I and I know I am jumping but I just want you know I'd, I'd like people to come away from this conversation and have some things that I'd like for them to think about um, and and apply it to the situation they might find themselves in one of the things that that you also see and and it happens particularly in the workplace it can also happen in learning institutions um, where where your lecturer or teacher will put the person in such a situation where for example the whole uh, computer thing and I remember having worked with someone who said her boss would call her in and it would be to discuss spread sheets actually <laughs> and when she gets into the office and and you know the monitor is away from the door 
he asks her to come behind him mm. and then pornography will be on the on the computer monitor and those types of sexual harassment and really and it's like my word and your word and who are they going to believe and it's just horrible and and i, I think it's very difficult for employers yeah. to regulate the work, workplace um sensitively because you, you don't want to have an over-regulated workplace where everybody feels uncomfortable and, you know, everyone's scared of being accused of sexual harassment just because they're being playful and so on. So I think, I mean, um, it's very important for employers to reach out to organizations like Rape Crisis and ask yeah. them to come in and help with that because if you've got good policies in place, then people know where to draw the line. Yes. And that's often the question, you know, when we've gone into workplaces where there are mixed men and women, the men say, I, I don't want to sort of not be who I am in this space, but I also want to know when I've crossed the line and I don't always know. Yeah. So that's quite important, you know, to help people, both men and women, mm-hmm. to, to be able to draw the line and respect the line. And I think... Yeah. That would be such an interesting question to ask your listeners. It's yeah. not just men and it's not just women, it's people and what happens between us and yeah. how we're socialized to, to think and believe and how that might need to change. Yeah. You know, I've got a critically, critically important um, WhatsApp message that had come through that is so much a part of what you what you we are speaking about um, in terms of educating people um, and vulnerability in terms of sexual harassment and how we can socialize and almost desensitize people and children and grooming them in terms of sexual harassment. So this is the the message that had come through, and I really would like you to comment about it. It says, "I had a bad experience in my youth against my will." As an adult, it still haunts me even though I have dealt with it. I'm a mother now and my firstborn is at an age where I'm teaching him consent. For example, no forced hugging, asking for kisses or hugs, etc. My problem that I have, and this is the critical part also, is that now that he's off the nappy, relatives tease him by wanting to grab him in areas that I'm not comfortable with in a so-called playful way. How do I tell them I'm not comfortable with it because this is family and I don't want to upset anyone? My goodness, I want to say thank you very much for this question Mm. because it's critically important to actually deal with it and stop this so but your thoughts please Kath well I mean Anna personally uses humor a lot to lighten a situation and to to sort of convey something negative without hurting another person so Mm -hmm. to joke back with those adults you know to poke them back in a place that they don't want to be touched Mm -hmm. and for the child on behalf of the child and then to and then to make it explicit and to say don't touch him there it's not appropriate yeah um, but you do it in a way that is light-hearted so that you don't make the person feel guilty for what they're doing yeah or maybe just you know try, you, it's always bad to try to contrive one of these conversations but to put it in the back of your mind i hope one day i have an opportunity to just raise this spontaneously in a conversation even if it's in two weeks time yeah. You know, just to, to keep it alive in my mind, I hope I get the chance to actually say what I really, truly thought and felt yeah. in that situation to the other adults. Yeah. Um, because I think what this person is saying is so important. You don't just yes. have a child or kiss a child. It's really teaching them something 
which is that they don't have agency, they don't have control, their consent is not there to do. Yeah. And I think, you know what, we're trying so hard to teach our little ones and across the board and people of all ages that you've got to respect. You spoke about space, Mm. space in terms of the body as well. You've got to respect the body of the other person. And when a child is small, that's when you actually have to teach them about respect for their body if we are expecting them to respect other people's bodies and other children's bodies. So I think you know this this question and you in fact Kathy you see this happening very very often and it really I have to say I um, it upsets me so I'm not even inclined to to want to approach it in a in a in a good way like you said I would just want to say you know that is really really not appropriate that's how you are yeah yeah so you know I'm just looking at um, another message that had come through and the person also says that they've had really a very nasty experience some people think it's normal they laugh and sometimes say that you're overreacting and and your thoughts on that please Kath well I think that's a defense mechanism on the other person's part you mm-hmm. know, people laugh to cover things up they, they laugh and they minimize what you've been through in order to make themselves feel safe yeah. in order to, to not feel any discomfort themselves yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and that is extremely characteristic there are a lot of people who simply can't cope with thought of rape it's just too horrific for them or uncomfortable for them and they will push it away even if they are in a position or could be in a position to help you yeah. and um, it's because they feel helpless they, they they don't know what else to say they don't actually have a, a deeper response for you yeah so um, you have to counteract that within yourself and to know that for yourself it is important that it isn't a laughing matter yeah and um, it's you know it's something that we're all alone in we yeah. all are alone in this world. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's sometimes when that solitude is protective and there's sometimes when it's isolating. And then you need to find somebody that you can speak to. And yeah. that's where, you know, again, to reach out to organizations like Rape Crisis where you can pick up the phone and tell somebody about the experience you've yeah. had and get a very different response to to counterbalance what yes. you and, uh, and I think it is so important yes um, unfortunately we have to conclude our part of our program and I just want to tell people who are sending through more um, messages that I will be attending to it after the conclusion with Kath so Kath thank you so much I think in our next program I really would like us to mention more of the myths or yes. more of the stereotypes so that people are aware that okay. these are myths and that we educate in this way because we have the two programs. I'm really looking forward to after the, the period and the month that we have of Ramadan that we can pick up our conversations again because there are so many different aspects, you know, that you deal with at rape crisis that I really would like us to bring um, to radio. So thank you very, very much for your time and all the best. Good evening. Thank you. Thanks, Shahida. It's my pleasure. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Kath Day, the director of Rape Crisis. We started the series that's focusing on men against abuse and violence. Particularly tonight, we spoke about their Making Change program. From me, Shahida Kali. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
and good evening.